Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is a little after five on a Wednesday evening, Wednesday, December the 8th. Um, before, before we jump into uh, our topics of the day, as the history buff that you are, do you know what, uh, what the significance of this day in history is? I assume that you're, you're saying you're asking about the significance of yesterday, which was the 80th anniversary of the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. Are you talking about something else? Uh, I suppose it's related. Today, 80 years ago, okay. uh, the U.S. declared war on Japan, okay. All right. uh, triggering our involvement in World War II. But it is more or less, I, I suppose the, the main day in history is, is December 7th. Yeah, December 7th, the day that will live in infamy. That, that's FDR. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, 80th anniversary. Um, kind of crazy. Have you been out there? To Pearl Harbor? Yeah. I have not. Um, I've only been to Hawaii once, and I don't think that was on the... I was a long time ago. Long time. Yeah. I went, out there with, I went out there with my family back. I think maybe I was in high school. Um, maybe maybe early in college. But um, pretty cool. Like Very like powerful. Obviously, like a, one of those sad memorials. And you see the list of all of the names. And you hear some of the stories and these were largely like 18 to 22 year old men and, and some civilians that were, that were there as well. Um, but in terms of like, it, it's a really like well done memorial and you can walk out in the USS, the remnants of the USS Arizona and like kind of look through a glass floor into like the remnants of the, of the ship. And we know that it burned for two days. And um, you know, what, certainly one of those moments, obviously particularly in the 20th century, but also really in history, that's, that's like a, a tide turning moment because up until that point, like the United States and FDR was still leaning on like the, hey, we don't, there was a lot of like anti-interventionist sentiment still going on in the United States and some denial of what was happening over in Europe. And until Japan attacked us, that that one Japan attacked us, that really changed the whole national sentiment and got, um, you know, the, the, the American people on, on board with um, entering back into a world war just 25 years after we had left the previous world war and um, you know, obviously helped propel the United States out of the Great Depression, the United States victory in World War II, or con- contribution to the Allied victory in World War II catapults the United States to the top of the world stage as um, one of the two you know, world superpowers after World War II. So it's just like, uh, while FDR knew that it was a day that would live in infamy because of the attack the United States suffered, I think not even he could have seen like how momentous of a day it ended up being for the rest of the 20th century and really the last 80 years. Definitely. And uh, it's, it's kind of fitting that we talk about maybe some of the things that we're going to talk about today on this day. Indeed. There are, yeah, yeah. There are a few like uh, interesting topics. Uh, so if you look at probably the United States two biggest world, like global rivals at this point, and you could maybe do one A, one B, um, we're probably talking about China and Russia and there are a few things in the news from this past week that uh, that I wanted to bring up. And so we'll talk about 
um, the Chinese Olympics and uh, the United States' decision to go with a diplomatic boycott at this point and kind of what that says was that the right move was it too much was it not enough so we'll talk about that for a little for a little bit and we'll also talk about um russia um there was a report that came out from u.s or leaked from u.s intelligence this week that it, it appears that russia is planning an invasion of the ukraine um in early 2022 and so we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit um and then in more local news the governor of Massachusetts, two-term governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, and his lieutenant governor, Karen Polito, announced this past week that they will not run for a third term. And so we'll kind of look, discuss like what that means for Massachusetts for a little bit. Um, and then we'll conclude, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, um, with uh, some reflection on, on, on some deaths um, over again over this past week. So uh, it's going to be one of those uh, like topics type episodes where we try to hit on, on a few things in um, like a little bit of depth as opposed to last week when we were talking about criminal justice system in great depth. Before we do get into it, uh, Ricky, I got a message from the guys over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. Um, they were really worried about the national employment figures that just came out um, about November, the job hiring. Oh, is that so? What do they yeah. have to say? I, he said, uh, the wood-fired pizza. So now where's pizza supposed to get a job? I mean, where uh, did they come up with this stuff? The guys over at uh, Cannon Hill Wood, they would like to remind you that they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Uh, you can check them out on Instagram, uh, or you can visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. That's Cannon with two N's. Uh, you can give them a shout if you're looking for a table or desk and let them know we sent you. Definitely. Oh, and a quick shout-out to one of our uh, former classmates who's a a, a canon hill member i think he recently had a baby so shout out to zach ardin yeah i don't i don't know if he'll have time to listen to this with the with the newborn on his hands but uh someone else can tell him that, that we gave him a shout out yeah. <laughs> yeah. so when you and i were talking this week about potential topics for the episode i said that i want to talk about i think i said baker russia china and we'll period, 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 and we'll put Baker on the, the back burner for a minute. But you, you were like, all right, well, can you tell me a little more about that? And I was like, oh, there's been rumbles, rumblings over this past month that about Russia's troop buildup in the Ukraine. And there's, you know, been stuff in the news about uh, you know, China and their human rights abuses that continue to go on, in my opinion. Uh and I was like, I want to talk about both those. And then obviously with this new cycle that, that never sleeps, there have been, there've been like updates about both. Of them. So, so let's start with China. So uh, why I had wanted to talk about China originally was that we've documented their alleged human rights abuses um, in the um, Xinjiang province um, against the, the Muslim Uyghurs uh, over the past couple of years. Um, you know, in my opinion, it's, it's pretty close to, uh, like a, a modern day like genocide of of those people. There's been like a lot of uh, forced conversions and sterilizations and some just really terrible stuff that's um, alleged to have come out of like that province of, of uh, Western China. Um, and that's in addition to like the Chinese communist government's like kind of usual mo of cracking down on dissent and uh, not allowing like uh, political free expression and like. Uh, kind of like, gen- <laughs> I guess I would say like general human rights abuses. Uh, and so one thing that, that's come out in the last, but like that hasn't changed. And so why I wanted to talk about it this week was uh, 
there was news that uh, a professional women's tennis tennis player, um, Peng Shuai, uh, had accused a communist uh, Chinese official of uh, raping her in a, a few years ago. And so she she accuses this official of sexual assault and then uh, rape. And then she had, had not been seen from in a number of weeks. And there was real concern amongst the Professional um, Women's Tennis Association, the WTA, uh, that something had happened to Penshry. And there had been like, there had been no sightings, there had been no word for her, like, as usual, what happens when people criticize the Chinese government is like their social media accounts are suspended. And all sometimes you just, you know, unfortunately, and like, scarily, you just like don't hear from those people anymore. And so Chinese government comes out and gives like, in a statement saying that like, oh, Peng Shui is just hanging low. And then coincidentally, a few days later, she's like, she appears at like a, at a charity event and she doesn't really get to speak to the media or anything, but they say, look, look, she's live. There she is. Stop, like, leave us alone. And so what I thought was really interesting about this was one, we have, you know, there are not too many like world famous Chinese athletes at this point. Like when we think of Chinese athletes, like it's the first name that, what's the first name that comes to your mind when we're talking about Chinese athletes? Yeah, right. Of course. Right. And so while he's probably still the most like globally famous Chinese athlete, he's someone that's been out of the NBA for a decade at this point. And so there's not a, a ton of like really recognizable like Chinese figures across the world. And a lot of that's intentionally done by the you know Chinese government not to allow that to happen. Uh, like they're juggernauts in the Olympics, but there's not a lot of like global sports that are global in which Chinese athletes are, are competing at an elite level. Um, but it's happened before. Like Li Na was a, a, a Chinese female tennis player that won, won a grand slam and was like, uh, you know, pretty famous, but again, she's retired. So whatever, to get into Peng Shui, like there, she's just one of the more globally known um, Chinese tennis players. And for her to come out and not only criticize the Chinese government, but to make a very specific allegation against a very specific individual was a, a huge deal in my opinion. And incredibly brave of her to do knowing you know where she is and the potential consequences to her. But what I thought in addition to like acknowledging her bravery was really interesting was that the women's tennis association really rallied around her and called for China to make sure to confirm that she was all right and to allow her to speak freely to the media. And then the WTA went and pulled out of all of like their events in China through 2022. And this is, I I know, like, I I feel like in my voice, I'm like it's, it's showing like how remarkable this is because it is remarkable in the sense that China had invested a ton of money into WTA events and into like their women's tennis program. And this was a huge moneymaker for um, the Women's Tennis Association, which to be frankly, needs the money that, that it gets. And it needs countries, particularly kind of more like countries that don't have as many like female athletes competing at this to like be investing in women's tennis and uh, in like growing the, glo- the game globally. And for them to make this, you know, really extraordinary gesture and statement on behalf of of one of their members, I thought was really terrific. And it was in such contrast to what happened with the NBA, where we mentioned this year and a half ago now, where Daryl Morey, who was then the um, general manager of the Houston Rockets, now the general manager of the the, uh, the 76ers, had come out and made a statement on on Twitter, pretty much were criticizing for criticizing China for what they were doing in Hong Kong, which was essentially violating the international agreement of Hong Kong sovereignty and cracking down on, on Hong Kong's freedom and ability to govern itself. Um, and the NBA like swiftly 
uh, came out like against really like there was a there was a big backlash. The China the Chinese government was like, we're pulling the Rockets games. We're not going to show the NBA games there anymore. And then you had LeBron James being like social justice warrior LeBron James, except when it comes to China. And then Ennis Cantor, who now plays for the Celtics, and in his last na- in his last week has changed his name to Ennis Cantor Freedom, um, and has spoken out at length against the Turkish government. Um, Ennis Cantor is from Turkey, and he's spoken out um, like against their president and uh, in, in what he views as like um, his human rights abuses that he's perpetuating in, in Turkey, uh, and has been very vocal about criticizing LeBron James for kind of speaking out both sides of his mouth, where when there's you know more human rights issues here in the United States or other other places, LeBron James is on the front lines. But when it comes to China, he's really quiet. And I think that's a fair criticism, not only LeBron, but of the NBA in general, where it's like, hey, it's all about the bottom line. And we're, we don't want to criticize China because it's going to like they're it's going to hurt our market share in, in that country. And we're kind of depending on them for income. And so for the WTA, who is a much smaller organization in, in the sense of like income and revenue to do that, I thought that was significant. And then obviously, I know I've been rambling here for a minute, but like the last thing that uh, just two days ago came out was that the United States decided that they were going to get engaged in a diplomatic boycott of the Chinese Olympics, uh, Beijing 2022 uh, Winter Games, which are taking place in February. And we had, I had advocated for this back in the summer when we were talking about the the Summer Olympics that were happening in, in Japan, the Tokyo Olympics. And I had said, hey, I just don't think the United States can go here in good faith because that le- legitimizes everything that this Chinese government is doing in a, in a lot of ways. I compare it, while I don't think it's quite the same thing, I also don't think it's totally dissimilar to the United States going to the 1936 Olympics in Germany and, and Hitler and the Nazi government pretty much saying like, hey, look at us, everything's fine here. And that bought them a few years to to commit some like really atrocities and lay the foundation for what would be later atrocities um, against Jews in, uh, in Germany and across Europe. Uh, and so the United States announced a diplomatic boycott this week. That essentially means that the United States is not going to send their usual delegation of official government officials. So normally the United States to every Olympics, they will send government officials. Sometimes it's the president, sometimes it's the first lady, sometimes it's the vice president, secretary of state, like all of these officials that go and kind of hobnob and schmooze and make it like this international event. The United States said, Hey, we're not going to, to send those officials to the Beijing game. i Chinese government was uh, predictably outraged about this. In the United States, it kind of ranged from the spectrum of like, hey, this is a really good step from the government to, well, this doesn't go far enough. We should be boycotting these games completely and not allowing our athletes to compete at all, a la like the 1980 um, Moscow Olympics, um, to, well, I think this is not really in the spirit of what the Olympics are. Like, we shouldn't be making them political. So there's kind of like lots, lots of reaction in the US, of course, there always are. All right, but that's kind of all of like my primer for China. Um, that's why I want to talk about it. Take it any direction you'd like. I mean, I, I, I really don't even know where to start. Cause I'm, I think I forgot a little bit about, uh, <laughs> about <laughs> where you began here. Um, I mean, I think, I think this is, well, all right. So I, I'll draw a couple of distinctions. One, I think Part of the reason this case is a little bit unique and the reason that actually the Chinese government is having a lot of difficulty dealing with it is that it is not actually like a direct repudiation of the government. Yeah, the guy was like a vice premier, but really, I mean, she was accusing this individual of committing this crime against her. 
Now, obviously, China and it's like, you know, weird media propaganda machine is trying to figure out like, all right, well, we don't we don't want people to hear about stuff like that within China. So we're going to, you know, delete all of her tweets and we're going to like, you know, spruce up her Twitter account or whatever. It's Weibo or whatever the Chinese version is um, and make it seem like this didn't happen, make her release a statement and do all these things. But it's not the like the, you know, the, the Ai Weiwei, like other Chinese dissidents who've sort of either been put under permanent house arrest or kind of like made to disappear because they were directly confronting sort of the Chinese government's philosophy on governing. So it, it is, I think it is kind of interesting to sort of see the tact that they're taking. They're, it's, it's not that we're like making this woman disappear, right? They sort of paraded her around this, (laughs) this weird, like children's like tennis event. Um, so that people could take pictures of her, but at the same time, yeah, like you said, not letting her talk to the public. Um, there, there there's certainly a lot of red flags that, that this, (laughs) that this raises, but also more so why kind of this kind of, uh, accusation is something that the government is like willing to kind of allow her to, paint the brush like broadly across like the regime like hey hey, this happens everywhere and I don't know if it's part that you know they're probably sure that other accusations like this might come out if they don't kind of figure out a way to squash this one but at the same time they have you know a a reputation that they're trying to build and and certainly there are uh news stories that are come out of China that that as you mentioned the situation um with uh, with Uyghurs, obviously what was happening in, in Hong Kong um, that kind of run counter to how China is effectively trying to portray itself. Um, I will say that I think we have to take a lot of news that we, I mean, maybe not in this particular instance, but in general have to take a lot of news from Western media outlets with a grain of salt about China because it is generally negative. Um, I think maybe on a, another one of your points, like, you know, why does LeBron James not tweet about China? I think I mentioned this at the time um, that I don't like, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of the shut up and dribble. I, I know that you're not either, but for him to be able to come out and speak about racial uh, injustice issues in the United States and not feel the need to speak about China, I don't see any problem with that. I think your larger point that like the NBA is beholden to Chinese money um, is still true. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I think that that extends to its its most prominent players. Um, but that is definitely, and, and as you were mentioning with the WTA, like it's a problem that people have to contend with that um, when somebody becomes your financier, like how do you hold them accountable when they're doing um, the wrong thing? But I, I think Personally, I think that there is, um, because the sort of authoritarian style of the Chinese government being very counter to Western values, we tend to frame everything that they're doing in like, in a lens of like, this is like evil and anti-human rights. And I, I think our concept of freedom and how that benefits us as individuals here in the United States is very different from 
how China kind of operates. And you can point to a lot of benefits of their system, right? The, the explosion in infrastructure, um, the lifting, you know, probably like 30, 40% of the world's um, population that was living in poverty was living in China in the 1990s. And now that fraction of, uh, you know, the um, amount of people that they've been able to lift out of poverty in the last 20, 30 years is astounding and really hasn't happened anywhere else in the world, maybe slowly happening in India a little bit. Um, but you're just not, you don't, you don't really see that anywhere. And a lot of that in a, in a weird way is a byproduct of a, the way that they're able to go about government. Right. And, and the flip side to that is they don't allow freedom of the press. They don't really, you know, a lot of these things that we hold near and dear, but our framing of it as being like, that, you know, China is out here to try and take over the world, I think is a little bit uh, misplaced. And I think if you sort of were to flip the script a little bit and try and look at sort of what's going on here from from a, a different perspective, they're probably seeing a lot of chaos and a lot of inaction. Um, and And, you know, it's not also that in the United States, we haven't voted for authoritarian type figures in the past, right? You don't have to to like look too far back to see that people who enjoy a lot of these freedoms are actually oftentimes looking for people that, I mean, take them away is not the right uh, answer, but they're, they're looking for people to do kind of some of the strongman things that we see happening under Xi Jinping in China. So that's like a huge, uh, probably, uh, you know, I'm taking the, the micro issue, which is certainly an issue um, and I think I'm trying to put it into a broader context where, I, like, I totally agree that it's, it's very, very strange. Like, what is going on? It's not even clear to me what's going on. Clearly, there is some kind of cover up. But that, you know, if we look at it within a frame of stuff that goes on here, like we know about, you know, when women come forward with sexual assault allegations, there are smear campaigns, there are like other things that may not be directly like government sponsored, and may not like make the p- people disappear, but largely have a very similar effect um, in, in terms of what they're doing. So I'm, I, I guess, I don't know, what do you think? Too crazy? <laughs> I'm surprised how vociferously you're defending China. I think it's a fair point and you've made it before that you know, we have to kind of check our own biases here and know that while there might be kind of consistently negative coverage across all of the news media or most of the news media here in the United States and in the West about China, that, you know, the Chinese government certainly doesn't see itself that way and thinks that the United States and other Western countries are, you know, are, are hugely biased to it in, in, in their coverage of, of China. And I think that's, I think that's a fair point. I, I think that's a little hard for me to overcome just because, like this isn't the case where I can, you know, turn on Fox and then turn on CNN and get it like get like both sides of the issue because pretty consistently I think people in the West agree that you know China is not a great place and um, I don't deny that they have had some you know really tremendous successes lifting many of you know <laughs> quite honestly millions of people uh, out of out of poverty maybe tens and hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and their explosion of infrastructure and their rise. Um, like technologically and scientifically over the past couple of decades where, you know, it's a huge growth in their military in some ways, but also growth in like the technology that they provide for, for, 
for many of us all over the world. When we talk about the like Apple products and those sorts of things, they're like largely sourced and, and made in China. And many of our products are made in China and they become a, a country that, you know, is up there like in, in challenging us, like the new space race. It's like, you know, China and the United States is new space race. And so like, I think in that sense, I don't disagree that the government has been effective in a lot of ways. Um, but I also, I I just can't like, I can't get on board with drawing some like the equivalencies that you seem to be drawing. And I, I guess like, I, I'm not saying that the United States is like an angel and China is the devil. Obviously, the United States has plenty of its own flaws with the way it, it treats women and handles um, women, like women's allegations of sexual assault, particularly against powerful men in this country. Um, the United States certainly has like plenty like of its racial issues. But to me, like that's not even close to equivalent in terms of what the United, what China is doing in, in the Xinjiang provinces. And like this isn't I don't think that's necessarily stuff that's like Western media bias. That feels like stuff that the United Nations and like the human rights watches and these well, you could say that I'm sure they're biased in their own right. Like their job is to try to point this stuff out. And for the last really almost three years, like it's been pretty consistently reported that the Chinese government is responsible for like pretty widespread and systematic like policies of like uh, like cultural extermination and uh, mass detention and, and torture and forced labor of of these people because of like their their religion and their roots. And that's I just don't like I don't think there's anything equivalent. And while like I, I don't have as much. I mean, I, they scare me, but I don't have as much of a problem with China trying to assert itself on the world stage in the way that I think the United States does. Right? I think those. Sure, I, I can draw the equivalencies there. I just can't. Like the, I can't kind of poo-poo like the freedom of the press and the the suppression of what I view as like basic human rights, like demo- values, like democratic values. And fine, China doesn't have to believe in those values, but I tend to believe like this, like right to like life and liberty and. Uh, and like freedom of the press and freedom of speech, like those to me seem like very like fundamental human rights. And for a country to be so, I guess, maybe dismissive of or unaccepting of those values, uh, I I can't get them. Not I know that you're getting on board with, but like I, I feel like that has to be called out as strongly and as consistently as possible, even knowing that like we have our own biases here. Yeah, and I and I guess I should qualify that I'm not really trying to defend China in any of these respects per se. I think the problem that I have is is essentially what you're saying is that like I don't buy that it is a, that that you can really equate anything that's going on in China to what's going on here. And I think, you know, to a degree, I think that that's definitely true, but I, I would say that we're not as far removed in terms for like temporally, like from a time perspective, from a time when we were doing things that China is doing today. And you can say, well, you know, they have the benefit of knowing today, but really like 50, 60 years ago, we probably had the benefit of also knowing then what we were doing. Right. So I think that there is a problem there. And, And this is not to say that people shouldn't, um yeah that that you know uh, that that things that people are doing bad anywhere in the world that we shouldn't focus on them and try and amplify and figure out uh solutions for these problems i i think my issue is in in part kind of our western narrative which basically says that like 
communist government by, I mean, first of all, China is kind of communist in name. They've really adopted a lot of kind of capitalist type reforms aren't right, but they've engaged in capital markets in, in much the same way as anybody, as any sort of major Western capital uh, driven economy, minus some like technology and patent protection, things like that, which are not inconsequential, but I'm, I'm digressing a bit here in, in to say that like, we sort of, by definition, say that this style of government is, uh, is evil and it's wrong and it deprives people of these basic rights that we hold near and dear. And, and I, I also am somebody who holds these things near and dear, but I try, I, I try to understand a little bit more that, um, and I'm not saying that people in China don't want the total like ability to have, you know, free press and, and free speech and be able to talk out against their government. But I think that there have been some benefits to that. And then I also think that like, you know, we live in an interesting time here where freedom of speech, we've sort of seen it in its, and I I don't know if, I don't know if this time in our history is really any different than any other time, but because of the social media and age, um, we've sort of seen a lot of the, problems with uh, everybody sort of being able to say whatever they want whenever they want to say it, right? Like there have been, I mean, it's it's undeniable the kind of the, the rise of misinformation in the United States. Now you can argue that one is government sponsored and one is people sponsored, but we have a lot of people here who also don't know what's going on. And that is like, a, a con, you know, if, if we're thinking like philosophically, like what is the, what are, what are we like doing here? And, you know, what is, what are we supposed to do in terms of a society? It's, it's not that abundantly clear in some of these aspects where, you know, freedom isn't prized as much, but everybody has a home or everybody has food on their table. Like it's a little bit, I think it's, yeah, I'm, I'm probably, I'm, I'm, I'm probably getting too far a stretch and I feel like I'm defending China when I don't really want to be, but I, I, I don't know. I think the trade-offs haven't really been explored as much because of just the way that we frame anything that's not freedom of speech as like uh, repressive and inherently evil. I, I didn't think that I was going to have to come out and defend freedom of speech today. <laughs> like, uh, um. Yeah, it's not it's not really an attack on on freedom of speech, um, but it is an acknowledgement that that we think of freedom of speech, we think of democracy as like the end all, the be all, the the thing that makes you know our society run. And I think I, I mean it would be impossible not to point out all of the problems that we've had with our democracy in the last like I don't know definitely in the last four to eight years. Uh, but I'm sure you could draw that line back longer. All right. Yeah. I, I don't think we need to get into it any more than that aside to say that, yes, I do paint democracy as the end all be all. Yes. I, I, like I, that's a hill I'm willing to die on. Um, I, I will say, I'm just kind of curious to wrap this up of like, what did you think of the United States, the Biden administration announcing the diplomatic boycott? Did, did that feel right to you? Did it feel like, Hey, you're doing too much or do you, you're doing too little? 
again, it's it's one of those things. It's like a symbolic gesture. We've talked a little bit about, you know, what is the right level when it comes to something like the Olympics. I mean, I think the right thing would have been for the Olympic Committee not to have given the Olympics to Beijing in the first place. Just put everybody like in this tough position. But no, exactly. But this is this is another problem. Like like we said with WTA or WNBA, like China is just throwing money at these bodies. And like you, if you want to stand for human rights or like stand for something, honestly, like you're going to have to make that decision and sorry like to get back to it but like we didn't talk about this LeBron quote but his quote was that like you know Daryl Morey was was either misinformed or not really educated on the situation that so many people could have been harmed not only financially but physically emotionally spiritually and like that's the type of thing where I, I feel like there's and maybe this is true of capitalism in general like you you have to balance what's good for my wallet with what do I really believe in and so sorry but I think that's a fair point. I, I wish it wasn't in Beijing, certainly not in Beijing so soon after, I mean, after it was just there in 2008. Uh, and given everything that China's done over this last decade, in my opinion, uh, I, I certainly wish it hadn't been given back to them. But we're here. And so the United States makes its move. What, what do you think about it? Um, well, I mean, you could make that argument about a ton of different things from uh what does capitalism tell you to do? It always tells you to, to follow the money and uh, ethical and other considerations be damned. Climate change being a huge uh, example of, of that. Um, I don't know. I guess I'd probably lean on the side of when it comes to this particular thing, like if you want to try and make a difference and you're thinking about, can we do some, like, yeah, it's it's very difficult when when you've gotten to a point where you are very reliant on Chinese dollars for uh, home for well, we import a lot of goods from them, but we also export a lot of goods, especially in the agricultural sector, like things like sanctions don't necessarily hold as much weight or can end up being more uh, damaging to your own economy than uh, sort of your intended target. Um that being said, yeah, I mean, I think if 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 what's going on in uh, in China is something that we are willing to sort of boycott the Olympics from a political standpoint, then we should be willing to do something else, or we should be coming up with some way to engage in dialogue over it. Um, there's yeah, I don't I don't necessarily know that I have a very strong opinion, um, but I do know that, you know, Olympic athletes wait four years to uh, compete. It's not their fault that the Olympics are in Beijing. Um, I don't necessarily think that the right move would be to pull all the athletes, um, all the American athletes from the games. So yeah. I guess this feels like a an OK middle ground, but um I also think it's like one of those, it's a, such a symbolic gesture that it really is almost meaningless. And so, yeah, why do it then? Fair. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a half measure. Um, I think to your point that the United States wanted to support its athletes and there was, you know, a number of athletes from 1980. Like uh, I think there's one sprinter I'd read about like Cliff Wiley, who was like one of the top sprinters in the world and then never got to compete and never kind of got back to that level. And so he never you know, he'd been working his whole life and never got to kind of perform in the world stage like he had dreamed of. And um, I, I totally understand that the desire to protect athletes 
and, and, and allow them to compete. And I think that's like a really legitimate um, like interest of the United States to allow their athletes to compete in these games. Uh, with that said, like one of China's reactions, in addition to saying that there would be like severe and swift and severe consequences to the United States, like uh, they said, well, doesn't make any difference anyway. It's not going to affect the games at all. And they're largely probably right. Like ultimately, like in normal Olympic games, like no one really cares about like the delegation that the United States sends to any of the Olympic games. Like maybe we get. A I didn't shot even on... know that we sent a delegation. Yeah, yeah, fair. Like maybe every once in a while, or a political we'll... delegation. Yeah, we'll, we'll get a shot of you know say you know, Vice President Harris or, you know, First Lady Jill Biden or Secretary of State Blinken, right? Like, we would maybe get a shot of them in the stands, like applauding athletes, or maybe we see them congratulating the United States team here and there, like, but no one spends much time thinking about it. And once the games start, like, yeah, give me, give me, you know, the basketball and the hockey and and all all of the sports. And like, I'm probably not going to spend much time thinking about it. So in that sense, yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's largely empty and symbolic. I mean, well, I will say I was, I was happy to me. It's definitely better than nothing. Like it always, I always think of like the Ali Wiesel quote in, in night where he says that like, um, like neutrality is always on the side of the oppressor. And like, I think Desmond Tutu is quoted with like, is a trip um, credited with like the silence always helps like the oppressor type, uh, you know, thing. And so at this point, at least the United States is at minimum, calling attention to what it views as human rights abuses in China and, you know, bringing some, there's a reason like we're talking about it and that it's, it was news and that Jen Psaki had to get up and, and make the announcement. Like it is something and it definitely got Beijing's attention. And while it maybe doesn't affect the games, the success of the games themselves, to me, it's, it's definitely better than nothing. And so I, I applaud the Biden administration. And while, like you said, it is largely a symbolic move. It's not one without, some like risk of blowback economically or, or, you know, however, and for the United States to actually be a leader, because other countries have talked about it. You know, I know Australia and the UK and Canada and other countries have had, had kind of floated the idea, but for the United States to be the first one to get out there and do it, I applaud that leadership in the sense of, yeah, that's, it might not be as much as, you know, I want to be, you know, criticizing and, uh, you know, impacting the Chinese government, but it's, it's not nothing. And, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I think I think the UK did follow suit. I might have read that, um, that they're also pulling their delegation. I mean, I guess not that I need to play any more of devil's advocates. I feel like I've already said some stuff that is really just too out there today, but um, that it it does risk becoming uh, like another here western democracies are going to unite and it's not kind of a global recognition of what's happening i think i like maybe i would have preferred an insistence on you know we're sending a delegation and we'd like to tour the country or something or we'd like to sort of see for ourselves what what's going on in these places and obviously you know a lot of that you know it's not that hard for them to put on a political theater and they do a lot of that, um, already, but, um, I don't know. I think there is something also to be said for, for figuring out kind of creative ways instead of just taking the, the antagonist sort of position, um, in all these things. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, let's talk if, if China's, global rival 1A on the world stage, Russia would probably be 1B. And over the past few months, it's been 
kind of floating on like the back pages of, of news stories and some of the back burners of you know a Russian troop buildup on the border with Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has people probably know it's uh, it's a country that's kind of split in between Russia and the European Union. It, it's on like the the far eastern border of the European Union. Ukraine was originally a member of or part of the Soviet Union. It, it, it left and gained its independence back in 1991 when, while the Soviet Union was, was falling apart. But Russia has never, particularly President Vladimir Putin, has never really gotten over the loss of the Ukraine in particular and really the loss of much of the original Soviet Union in general. Uh, and so we know like back in 2014, uh, Russia had a big buildup of troops along the Ukrainian border and what was then the Ukraine region of um, Crimea, Crimea, um, and the, Russia subsequently invaded and annexed Crimea um, as, as part of itself, like now that's part of Russia. There was a referendum shortly after Russian troops invaded about whether or not the people of Crimea believed they should join Russia. And um, you know, incredibly, there was 97% of the vote felt that they should join Russia. So while we're talking about uh, government regimes uh, that are anti-free speech and anti-press and anti-fair like fair elections, Russia is at the very, very top of that list. And so this, in some ways, feels like a repeat of what happened seven years ago. I, I believe some of the latest estimates are that uh, Russia has 175,000 troops at the Ukrainian border, while President Putin denies that Russia has any plans to invade Ukraine. It's it's really hard to take him at his word, really in general, but certainly when you've brought 175,000 troops to uh, the border of a country that you have previously invaded. Um, and then the United States intelligence came out with a report just a couple of days ago that uh, the U.S. has intelligence that Russia is planning to invade Ukraine in early uh, 2022. So obviously that this puts the Biden administration, the U European Union, NATO in uh, somewhat of you know, precarious position where the Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Um, it's like I said, it's, it's still kind of split. And to be fair, I, I think there's a, there's disagreement in the Ukraine of um, some people probably want to remain closer to Russia and like the, those Russian roots and others want to become you know, closer to the European Union and in the West. And so I'm, I think that's a, a fair debate that Ukraine is having and can have and should have within their country. Uh, but this will be you know, an interesting test here, because to me, it, it seems pretty clear that you, the Russia is going to invade Ukraine in, in within the next couple of months. Um, and then it becomes a question of what does the United States do? What does the European Union do? How do you react to, you know, this, this world power that had maybe been lying dormant for a couple of decades, but seems increasingly emboldened in, in the past few years and in starting to assert it, reassert itself uh, militarily on the world stage. So um, what were your thoughts or what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, well, um, I like that we're getting these predictions on um, on the pod here so we can review in a couple of months to see uh, to see if they were right or not. I actually I uh, I don't think Putin will end up invading Ukraine in sort of the traditional sense of like, I'm going to send Russian troops with our flag across the border to reclaim Ukraine as a part of Russia. Um, I think he's a little too shrewd for that and understands that even though Ukraine's army and like armed forces would have zero chance of stopping Russia from doing something like that. Um, one, it would most likely even if like the initial conflict was short, it would most likely, you know, devolve into some kind of 
separatist, like guerrilla standoff and, and those types of engagements, as the U.S. has found out, take very, very long periods of time to resolve if they ever resolve and end up sucking a lot of money. What happened in Crimea, which is kind of like a small I don't know if you can call it a vacation spot, but it's it is kind of the closest thing that 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 anyone in that region has to a vacation spot. And um, I think is a very different situation than what Ukraine, which has, I want to say, like 10, 12 million people um, as a country would be um, to invade, even if militarily they don't have like the uh, missile defense systems or, or really anything to offer up much resistance. Um, I mean, on top of that, even though Russia, I think, has been able to do a pretty good job of insulating itself from global type sanction measures, uh, I think what would happen after an invasion of Ukraine would be of a different level. Um, and I see most of what Russia is doing as uh, kind of a warning shot that like, you know, Ukraine has sort of been been creeping ever closer to Western um, European Union and obviously the United States and kind of trying to distance itself from Russia while it sort of is surrounded by Russia on three borders. And that is uh, problematic from, for Putin as somebody who is, uh, you know, wildly egotistical and like, uh, it's a problem for him as like a person, but a problem for, uh, the image of Russia as he would like to portray it. Um, and I think this is one of those, uh, I don't know if a shot across the bow is the right word, but I, I think really what he's saying is that like, we're prepared to do this. Um, if, for instance, Ukraine is uh, granted membership into NATO and we start putting U.S. troops there, NATO troops there, which would de facto be U.S. troops and start putting other and start sending U.S. like big, big gun military things to the Russian border. That's that's how I read the situation. I I would not be surprised if I'm dead wrong on this, but um, yeah, I don't. I like, I, I'm not, I don't want to minimize that level. 175,000 troops is a lot, is a lot of people. Um, and I mean, and quite frankly, I don't think you would need half of that amount if they were actually going to, to sort of successfully, you know, do a, whatever, whatever we call it, like a shock and awe type of campaign to just go in there and bull rush them. Um, but I, th- I think economically, and sort of geopolitically, it's not the end goal. The end goal is for Putin would be to sort of figure out a way to reinstall Russian influence within the government that really existed pre pre twenty ten. Um, so even after the fall of the Soviet Union and after kind of the establishment of the state of Ukraine, which is only thirty years old, um, that or the nation state of Ukraine. Um, that I, I don't I don't think that that is like the 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 end goal. Although you know you're certainly right that Ukraine has been a big like wishless item for Putin uh, for a long time. <laughs> right, and so the way you say like you're reading the situation is pretty much the, what 
Putin has put out there of like, hey, he's said like he's got like this red line, which is one of those famous like if if this is if this is done, then we'll do that. Um, where Ukraine has been rumored that Ukraine might want to join NATO and be accepted in NATO. And just to be clear, NATO is the North Atlantic um, Treaty Organization, which is really the world's most powerful military alliance um, between Western and increasingly all of like the European Union countries, not all of them, but like the, the Venn diagram is like largely, there's a, there's a big center to that of European Union countries and, and NATO countries. Um, and so like that alliance combined with um, some of like the uh, North American countries, like the United States, Canada, et cetera, um, they're all part of one big um, uh, like military alliance, um, the United States, in their troops and their money funds a great deal of NATO. So Putin, as you rightly pointed out, is pretty much said like, hey, if Ukraine takes steps to join NATO, then Russia will be forced to act. And we are clearly ready to act. Um, we'll see. I mean, I guess I hope that's that's what happens. Putin and Biden um, spoke by phone just this afternoon, I think. Um, and they, I guess both of them said like, hey, we had a really good, honest conversation. And um, Biden said that this is not going to be a situation in which the United States commits troops. If anything should happen to the Ukraine, he's obviously because Ukraine isn't in NATO, there is um, no like treaty obligation to defend Ukraine. Um, but Biden said that he communicated to Putin that there will be political and economic sanctions, the likes that Putin has never really seen before. And so um, to your point, like those those sanctions, I think, would be severe and potentially crippling to uh, the Russian economy. And Putin will certainly have to weigh that. Um, with that said, I mean, I, I do think Putin might view some weakness here of a, a, a an unwillingness on behalf of NATO to get involved militarily. And then he really had, just has to weigh like his desire to plant the Russian flag in, back in Ukraine and kind of reclaim it, as I think we both acknowledge he like in his ideal world, he wants to do with potential consequences economically. So um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm certainly hopeful. I don't want any more war. I don't want more Russian aggression in the world. Um, hopefully the threat of sanctions is a great way to uh, preemptively solve this problem. I think that would be best for everyone. I, I have very little faith that that will happen. Um, I guess the only other thing I'd say is that Ukraine is huge. It's the second largest country uh, in Europe by land size behind Russia and it has like 41 million people. So, uh, all right, way yeah. off, but yeah. in the, in the, in the right, in the right direction, meaning that it would be very difficult, I think, to sustain that kind of a offensive, even if sort of the initial surge is met without much resistance. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think an interesting thought exercise, um, Right. Because like, you know, and, and, I, and I don't think you're wrong that certainly Putin has an ability to kind of control what the narrative is from from their side and how he's going to frame it as not uh, an aggressive move, which it's very difficult to read putting troops on a border as anything but yeah. aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's 175,000 troops up and says, hey, if you do, if you be aggressive, then we're, then we're going to respond to you. Like, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. You can do that. Like, hey, self-defense, man. You can, you can make an argument out of anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, I like if, you know, this is one of those things where NATO, the North Atlantic uh, um, treaty organization, is the U.S. across the Atlantic 
and then it's the European Union. Uh, a large part of Russia's, I don't know, angst in this situation is that, you know, United States influence is growing in its backyard. Um, if, for instance, the flip side were happening in bad analogy, but like, you know, Mexico is considering going into a, a military alliance with Russia and that would allow Russia to, you know, put uh, anti or missile defense systems on, on the border. But, you know, those, those systems end up being really just an ability to, you know, your missile defense is really, we're, we're trying to shoot down missiles with other missiles, which basically means now we have ballistic capabilities to, to send missiles into the United States. Like, is that something that you would expect the United States would say like, I mean, I guess if it happens, it happens, right? Like there is, there's something to be said for, and, and this is not, again, not trying to be a defense of, of Putin, but like flipping the frame of reference in that there is something to be said for, and, and I don't actually think Biden is crazy about having Ukraine join NATO in general because of already the pretty large expense that, that NATO is for the United States in terms of how we have to support militarily um, a lot of countries in Europe to, to sort of, you know, keep that, uh, that alliance, uh, I don't know, strong, I guess is the right word. I mean, I think there is, I think there is a little bit to that. Now, of course, we have seen what he's done in the past with Crimea. That's not, should not be uh, minimized, but there is, I think it's, it's hard to envision, like, who are the heroes of, of the Russian story? And we understand how kind of Putin is, is viewing himself and framing himself. And it's, it's just, uh, in terms of what is the right move, I feel like Biden's kind of doing the right thing here. Um, like it would be way worse to, to either sort of threaten, like, Hey, you better not do this or else, right. Like an open-ended threat. It's like the clear we're we're going to go with economic sanctions. Um, we really hope you don't do this. Please don't do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I do think it's fair, and I, I appreciate you doing that of like providing that like a little bit of context because like I will totally admit that I am susceptible to anti-Russian and anti-China bias, and I have like very strong thoughts about it. And the media that I consume is kind of fueling my own thoughts, and so if I'm going to be critical of like echo chambers that I feel exist on like the political spectrum here in the United States, I think it's right of you to point out that that sort of um, narrative and echo chamberness exists for you know media that covers Russia and China as well. And so while uh, I will continue to speak out against um, those countries that I, when I feel like they're doing things wrong or that I disagree with, I, I think it's fair to ask me and ask anybody to step back and kind of reconsider if the shoe is on the other foot. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right to highlight these issues. I, I think it's, it is, um, I think my, my criticism is sometimes that we don't, or, or that like, we are not yet perfect enough. And yeah. And this is, this is the problem, right? Because like you should, if things are, if things are wrong, it is important to highlight them and make sure that people are aware of what's going on. And to the extent possible, like make sure that people are being held accountable. Um, 
And then I also have a problem with like, I feel like there is still so much like that we need to improve on here to hold, to actually live up to the ideals that we espouse that like, it's sometimes easy to be like, well, what about Russia? What about China? It's like, okay, yeah, they're doing a lot of bad things that I'm glad do not happen here, but that doesn't help me or that doesn't help us move forward um, to I don't know if to focus on that is not is right. Cause like, obviously we don't, we don't, we don't talk that often about them and certain things are going on and it's definitely right to, to point those things out. But I, I think, I feel like, and this is probably just my own like ingrained skepticism is that there's just a little bit of arrogance when I listen to news stories in the United States talking about what's going on in these countries. And certainly they are right to highlight them in the way that they do but to understand that like people can tell, you know, not similar, but parallel stories about what's going on about things that happen in the United States, as if it's a, it's like a, a monolithic body that all subscribes to like, you know what I mean? There's like a lot of tension in China. There's a lot of tension in Russia, similarly to the way that we have tension here. So when we talk about a single country, kind of acting in a, in one way, we almost ascribe like everyone is on board with this. And like, I don't think Russian people want Vladimir Putin to, to invade Ukraine. Like, I don't think that's something that is top of mind in terms of like, Oh, how is this going to improve my day day to day life? Right. Like, I think sometimes when we talk about these global issues, we lose sight of the fact that like individual people live in these countries and they, I believe are largely similar to, to who we are in terms of just like, you know, I want to make sure that I have clothing, shelter and, and food uh, on the dinner table. Yep. And I think, I think it's probably clear, but to emphasize on, on my behalf, it's uh, my criticisms are not criticisms of Chinese people or Russian people. It's criticisms of the Chinese government and the Russian government. But uh, I think I, I totally concur while we disagreed for a lot of that segment, I concur with, with how you ended that. Um, so let, let's step away from the world stage and, and more back into our, let's get back to our backyard here for this next segment. So news broke last week that Governor Charlie Breaker here in Massachusetts and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito would not run for a third term. Uh, there was a lot of debate about whether they would because no modern governor in Massachusetts has run for and been elected to a third term. So in that sense, there was kind of a natural, hey, you serve one or two terms and step away to, to do other things or like your time has in, in at the state house has kind of expired, time to move on. Um, but there was also a, a strong school of thought that Baker and Polito would run again because they have consistently polled well here in Massachusetts. Governor Baker, over the course of his, his tenure, was uh, consistently one of the top one, two, three most popular governors um, in, in the United States. Uh, he certainly had the this, this strong backing of independence. And while there were a couple of candidates who might have given him a good race, whether in the Republican primary or in the general election, it was largely expected that Baker would have been the favorite if he had chosen to run again. And so it was kind of a will he or won't he over these past few months, a lot of speculation. And then 
kind of out of nowhere, at least for me, the news came down that Baker and Plato announced that they were not going to run for that third term. And that leaves obviously a wide open race in some ways for the Massachusetts uh, state house in 2022. Um, so I guess kind of like two things I'd be curious to get your thoughts on one, like looking back at the Baker Polito administration over these last eight years, thoughts on like how they did. Um, and then let's, let's talk about that first. And then we'll talk about like who could be some of the potential candidates, what kind of race we're going to be looking at in the, in the next 11 months. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I'm actually, Maybe I'll start with a question because I'm a little surprised. Um, my understanding was that he pulled out of the race in part because he wasn't interested in going through a primary um, with a Trump-backed challenger in in, uh, in Jeff Deal. Jeff? Yep. Um, and that even though he's been polling well in Massachusetts, like broadly, that within the Republican party in Massachusetts, he's not doing very well. Um, and that's in large part because he hasn't been pro Trump the way, uh, the way many mass, the way many Republicans anywhere would have wanted him to be. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's an interesting narrative. And I think that's one that I've actually heard from the Massachusetts Republican Party kind of being like, see, we finally got this guy out of office. Like he didn't want to deal with a real true, true Republican as opposed to like the rhino Republican name only that he is. Um, That has certainly been the the sentiment out of the Massachusetts Republican Party in the last three years. Um, The head of the Massachusetts Republican Party is this man, Jim Lyons, who has fully who was elected um, just a couple of years ago in a pretty split vote. And the Massachusetts Republican Party is, is kind of split in two. You have like the, really the Trump aspect of the Massachusetts Republican Party, and then you have the more Baker aspect of it. And so they were in constant tension over these past three years where Baker is clearly a moderate Republican. I think if you're a moderate Republican in a blue state of Massachusetts, you are probably like a conservative Democrat in most other places in the country. And so for people on the farther right that are Trump voters and who view themselves as real, actual, like national Republicans, Baker was not a Republican and they are excited to see him go. For the more moderate um, portion of the Republican Party here in Massachusetts, and what I think is a large portion of independent voters here in Massachusetts, especially those who lead conservative, Baker was more their guy. Uh, so Jeff Deal is is you kind of you flipped the script on me. So I guess we'll we'll talk about so like the the 2022 candidates first. So Deal announced uh, earlier this year that he was going to he was going to run for governor in the Republican primary. We didn't know what was going to happen with Baker, but Deal was pretty much like whether he's in it or not, I'm in it. Um, Jeff Deal was the 2018 Republican nominee for U.S. Senate. Um, I competed you against him. <laughs> yeah, so. I worked on a different campaign for a different, um, you know, Senate nominee, some woman, Beth Lindstrom, who was running for U.S. Senate in 2018 as well. For a moderate conservative Republican. She she is. I think she would have been an excellent uh, nominee and would have uh, given Elizabeth Warren far more of a battle than Jeff Deal did. Uh, But Deal is very much has has been right and has moved right in the last few years. He is very much in line with what um, Jim Lyons wants out of the Republican Party here in Massachusetts, and th- he has a, a, I would say, small but fervent backing within the Republican Party, and we know how that can be effective in a primary. I mean, I think Baker, I think Baker's probably tired, right? I think he's he's done this for eight years. 
he's had to deal with the COVID for the last two years. And I even like this summer, I, I got to sit in on a meeting with Joe Creditone um, out of uh, Somerville, the guy that had been the mayor there for like 20 years. And I'm, I'm no fan of his, but like when he said he, he was like really honest and he, he also decided not to run, run this year for uh, mayor again in Somerville. And he was kind of like, yo, I'm exhausted. Like he was like dealing with this COVID stuff over the last like year and a half. It's like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Every day is something different. And he was just like, it's not that I'm done with public service, but I want to step away for a little bit. And I, I think that has to be happening within like the Baker and Plita households of like, yeah, we could do this again. And quite honestly, we could probably win again. But like, do we really want to battle this out in a Republican primary and like defend our record from like Trump acolytes on the far right? And then go through what was probably going to be a grueling like general campaign and defending our rights and moving to the center. You know, like it's just that's a long haul after having done this for eight years. And I think there's something to be said for like sitting back and being like, we did our job. We still have an incredibly high approval rating here in the uh, in, in Massachusetts, and it, it's just time to step away. Yeah, I I think I mean I I totally would sympathize with that. Um, the damned if you do, damned if you don't has been the story of COVID and everybody is angry all of the time. Um, for, you know, in, in some ways, understandably so, every decision has a different set of repercussions for different sets of people. And, um, and then, you know, between the different lobbies and like sometimes you're making decisions that don't always, are not always congruent. Um, that it, I, I do not envy that job at all. And that constantly just being told that you're like destroying everything all the time when really you're just a lot. I mean, I, I never had very strong feelings about Baker, um, which I think was kind of the, almost the point of, of the Baker administration. I felt like, um, but yeah, I can't imagine that he really enjoyed uh, the <laughs> the last two the last two years. But I think maybe my question for you would be: Is it disappointing that somebody like Baker that there is doesn't feel like there's a real home in the Republican Party of today for somebody like Baker, or is there? Yeah, it's disappointing. Um, I think it's fair to have like wings of a party and for people on the farther right to want to pull more in that direction and say that like, I don't think Baker has done enough to support, you know, Second Amendment rights or to support, um, you know, lower taxes or to fight harder against the Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate, right? And I think those are all like legitimate criticisms of him. I hate criticisms that pretty much say like this guy is not a Republican because of like what he believes, you know, like generally speaking, like he was elected because of, I would say, very traditional Republican values. And while it's fair to criticize his performance and to say that, hey, he, he hasn't done enough as a Republican in, in all of these various scenarios, whether COVID or pre-COVID, right? I think fair to criticize, but to pretty much like have this like ideological purity test for either party of like, if you don't believe and if you don't do these certain things that you can't be, you can't call yourself a Republican. Like, yeah, that bothers me because like, again, <laughs> we've talked about this. 9% of people in Massachusetts are registered Republicans. 
You know what I mean? Like, in what world does the Republican Party here in Massachusetts think that we should be turning people out that are calling themselves Republican and saying that, like, you're not Republican enough for us? Like, how is that an effective strategy? It's it's not like it like and there's a reason why Democrats have super majorities in the House and the Senate and are probably likely to now get the governorship as well. And why there's no member of the Massachusetts delegation that is a that was a Republican hasn't been for really since Scott Brown. Um, and so to me, just like strategically, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's disappointing to me. I think this will continue to to be a battle or like for, I guess, not that this is like super important considering like, but the soul of the Republican Party here in Massachusetts, but like like what the Massachusetts Party Republican Party is going to be. I think what's hard is that you have such like hardcore people on the farther right, like the Trump acolytes here that are so willing to dig their heels in that like a lot of like more moderate Republicans are pretty much like, all right, I'm out of here. I'm just going to be an independent. Right. And so like that, that, I mean, I think that's hard because it's not good for the Republican party because it doesn't really exist. Like 9% of voters, like, and if your candidates are like a Trump guy, you're just not going to get like 55% of voters here in Massachusetts are independent. Many of them, maybe even like half of them probably lean more Republican and conservative. Right. But like, Definitely they're not going to go fiscal up. issues definitely on fiscal issues for sure yeah and so for sure like you're not going to get like a lot of support if you're just going to run like kind of quote-unquote true republican trump candidates here in massachusetts like and so ultimately what you have is you don't have an opposition party here in massachusetts and always even if this state was all republicans i would say like you need a strong opposition party it, it literally in any any level of government to push back on ideas. And so like, you can't just have super majorities ramming through far left or far right policies. Like that's, I just don't think that's good for anybody. Like, there's a certain amount of tension. I know we criticize Washington for being like a gridlock, but like a certain amount of healthy debate and tension within like political ideas and bodies of government, I think is critical. And so while I do think it's fair to criticize Baker in a, in a lot of ways, for not maybe doing enough or pushing back hard enough on some of like the the things that came out of the the state house in the last eight years. I think the reason why he was so popular was because people did like having that check on like their legislators, like kind of knowing that, hey, I I'd probably set side more with the liberal Democrats in the state. And like if I'm voting for my state representative or state senator, I'm more likely to vote for a Democratic candidate. But I want someone up there to kind of like be a restraint on what could be like runaway leftist policies and having a Republican in, in the governor's office does that and makes everyone like feel a little bit better about themselves. Yeah. And of course, tax, you know, it, it goes back to some of what we were talking about in terms of people hold a lot of the ideals of what they want to see, but don't necessarily want to see or don't necessarily the want the policies that may lead them to those ideals to be enacted in their backyard. So it's like a little bit easier having that veto power in the office. And, uh, and you can say that, Hey, I'm voting for all the, you know, the right things they'll have. Yeah. Like that guy up there, if that guy, if that guy wasn't there, you know, they would really put in those policies that I say that I want. Well, <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, here is the, you know, probably what you're going to see now, um, if Deal is the candidate uh, from the Republican Party, is that the, you know, it, and we can now maybe transition to who some of the other candidates might be, like a more Healy, um, 
or some other people even to the left of her. And so you're going to go from, uh, yeah, you, you can say a Republican in name only. I, 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 I feel so bad for the Republican party that a guy like Baker, who is reasonably fiscally conservative has been demoted to Republican in name only because he's, he's like, he's not crazy, which I feel like is what, you know, yes, they're like, he's not strong enough on, on anti-abortion, not strong enough on guns, but like, also he's not crazy. And we kind of need that. That's like part of the, the checkbox for, for like the ultra right, like pure, pure test of Republican today, which is, which is wild to me because still not clear entirely what Donald Trump stands for, but that is become, are you with him or are you against him? America first, Ricky. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like he he, he could just say that at any time. And it's like, yes or no question. He just says America first. And that's like the answer. You know, there's like a, like an early season family guy clip where Lois is running against Adam West for like mayor of Quahog. And she gets up there and like, they ask her a question. She tries to give like a legitimate answer to it and no one responds. And so Brian like whispers in her ear, he's like, you can't speak to voters like this. You just have to say like basic things. And she ends up saying, she ends up saying America, the (laughs) troops, Jesus. And people start going wild for her. And she ends up like winning the election in a landslide. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's, I, I think, um, Right. The flip side of ousting a guy like Baker is that you're not going to go to the right of Baker in a state like Massachusetts. You're going to go to the left. Um, And so like while they cheer it as like a glad he's gone, it's like a careful. I I mean, they have to know that 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 deal has very little chance of winning. Yeah, I want to say zero, but, you know, I'm a very superstitious guy, so I won't say that. But he's a very, very small chance of doing anything in Massachusetts. Exactly. I mean, that's, I think that's the frustration from what I would call more, if I was being kind, more moderate or more normal, like Republican voters here in the, in Massachusetts being like, look, like we, it's not perfect, but we kind of have to accept the realities that exist on the ground and do the best we can within those realities. Like it doesn't do us any good to nominate this ideologically pure candidate that then loses, right? Like that, like that's, how's that effective for us trying to get any policies that we want in place passed? Like, so yeah, I mean, I can't, you would think they have to know, but like they certainly aren't acting like it. Like the reaction on the right and the emails that I big get, celebration. It was a, there's been a big celebration of like, look, this is our chance to really, you know, put a, a true Republican in place. All right, so we get deal on the Republican side. We'll see if anybody else comes out. Of course, I would be surprised if there isn't a more moderate candidate that does try to emerge and, and run. Obviously, um, Polito was kind of is kind of the big name that's hanging out there. Is she going to decide to run? What's she going to decide to do next? Um, we'll, we'll see. I think if you're a moderate candidate, though, and I experienced this personally, like there's just so little incentive to run in a Republican primary because like you're going to get like destroyed in a Republican primary by all of the hardcore voters that turn out in primaries, and like you you have to make sure like to turn out or to try to turn out independent voters who have the choice of which primary they want to vote in. It's just it's so hard to win uh, like a, a primary as a moderate candidate. We talked about this at length, but like, there's just, like, I saw some calls for like the, my former boss, Beth Lindstrom to get back in the race. And it's like, I would love to see her do it, but I can totally see her being like, why, why would I want to do that again? Like, it's just like having had that experience of 
like we ran what I'd say like a pretty effective campaign, but then we just couldn't turn out the voters that we we needed to in, in a primary. It's like, it, it felt like in some ways, like the playing field was so stacked against us that we could have run a perfect campaign, which we didn't, but like we could have run a perfect campaign and still wouldn't have won in this primary. You know, what's interesting. I remember in that campaign, you had been like, hey, are you a registered independent? And I was, so I could go and you were like, that's, you know, Warren is going to be on on the other side. You don't need to vote for her now if you don't want to go vote for Beth Lindstrom. And I, I thought about that a lot. And like, obviously, we've talked about ranked choice voting. I, I did. I did make it out there that day um, for the record. Thanks, <laughs> um, we but needed, we I, needed like uh, like 50,000 more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I thought about that a lot in that I would love to see Democrats and Republicans voting in in all primaries. And I know some people are like, well, you know, that is an incentive to vote for somebody who you like know can't win. And I think that maybe that's true, but also it should also be an incentive to say like, Hey, if my guy doesn't win, who would I like to, who, you know, who, who from the other side of, of spectrum of candidates would I be okay with or be like least upset about? Um, and, and instead of coming to a point where it's like, the, you know, the most extreme candidates on either side, we at least have like, all right, well, if my guy doesn't win and this guy does, at least I had like a, you know, at least I was partially bought into his campaign as well. And I know something about him or something. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I could not agree more with that. And like, it's, it's like all of when we talk about voting stuff and it's, it's always like the scare tactics that you have correctly pointed out before. It's like, what like we're talking about what, what percentage of the lunatic fringe is going to go and infiltrate the Democratic primary to pick a candidate that they think is going to lose, right? Like, to me, when I'm voting, I'm voting for the person or, like, or people that I think I would best want to see up there, right? And that's what we talk about, ranked choice voting, where it's like, yeah, even if I don't like, even if I like this candidate a little bit more than this candidate, I could live with this second candidate, right? Like, I can't, I don't want to live with either this super far left or super far right candidate. And I just think, I think the majority of voters, the vast majority of voters, like feel similarly, and like those those fears of like sabotage would be really like wildly overblown. Yeah. All right. So just like briefly, we'll, we'll come back to this race hopefully more often than we came back to the mayoral race <laughs> next year. Um, but some candidates, obviously, um, Ricky, you mentioned the attorney general here in the uh, Massachusetts, Mara Healy, who was the first like openly gay um, elected official here in Massachusetts and has a, she was long rumored to be re- challenging Baker anyway. And now with Baker out of the race, like she becomes, I think the presumptive favorite in this race. Uh, we mentioned Jeff Deal. I mentioned, I do think there'll be some sort of declared yet though, by the way, correct. she is not, um, deal has already declared and we'll probably, like I said, get some sort of moderate Republican in it. But uh, I think the, the real focus will be on the Democratic side because we'll get, I'd be surprised if we don't get Healy. Um, I would be surprised if we don't get someone to her left. Uh, Senator, uh, State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz has already declared. She's someone I know a little bit about. And, and again, we don't have to talk about her in depth, but I think she would be, she's someone we could maybe revisit down the line. Um, there's a couple other candidates who have declared, but not huge name recognition would really take a a huge campaign the next year to be elected, but Healy's the one to look for. And then the only other name that I think would be interesting is, you know, does Mayor Walsh come back and decide that like, Hey, he's done with Washington. He misses Boston. He thinks he has a good shot at taking this governorship after his buddy, Charlie Baker. Um, he's got still, I think like some like $12 million or X number of million dollars left in his uh, campaign account. 
does he come and launch a, launch a bid? I think that would that's going to be kind of interesting over the over these next few months to see what happens. Yeah, definitely, definitely something to follow. All right, so I think when we come back, we'll touch off on maybe one of the uh, sadder bits of current events, and uh, then we'll call it a week. Wheel of fortune, silent ride, heavy metal suicide, foreign debts, homeless vets, AIDS crack, burning gets, hypodermics on the shore, China's under martial law, rock and roll and cola wars, I can't take it anymore. So um, just about a week ago now, um, a familiar tragedy occurred in the U.S., in the town of Oxford in Michigan, uh, where there was another school shooting. Um, this time, four uh, students were killed. Um, I think total seven people were injured. Uh, eventually, the, the student who committed the shooting um, was apprehended. Um, yeah, I mean, when I, when I sent you this, you were kind of like, I don't know if I have too much to say about it. And I think my immediate reaction was like, I don't think that I do either. And that's probably not normal. Um, or that's like not that. Yeah, it's, it's um, I think, you know, we'll be, we'll hear again about how there are other, you know, continuous forms of violence that don't get the kind of national publicity that these school shootings do. But I think there is something, I almost said special is not the right word. There's something uh, differentiating about school shootings that really cut to the core of, yeah, what it means to be American, that we like go to these places of learning and expect to do them and expect to be there or our children expect to be there um, safe. And this is something that like, it doesn't have to happen everywhere all the time. The fact that it happens with any sort of regularity means that, that parents all over this country live with that, slight fear, uh, maybe to differing degrees in different places, but it's, it's there and it's, it's tough. Um, I'll point out just a couple things that make this case, um, something that we will probably talk about, um, in the future. One that the, 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 uh, the shooter, alleged shooter, uh, parents are being charged um, in this case. I don't think that's ever happened in the past. Um, they gave him the gun uh, that he used in in this atrocity. There may be further charges against the school because there seemed to have been some absurdly obvious signs uh, of trouble with um with the shooter and that like he drew a picture of him shooting people um, and was somehow able to explain that away um, like right before this happened, uh, which is also insane to me. Um, I don't know if this one feels different to you. I haven't heard 
in the way that after like Parkland, um, certainly, or after Sandy Hook, um, the chorus of people come out and sort of say, we need to do something about guns. It seems now that people are kind of resigned um, to the reality that we live in. And we talked a little bit in terms of, you know, we are a country that that does prize the Second Amendment, but what does that necessarily mean? And what does that uh, entail? So I don't know. I'll, uh, I'll leave it to you to, uh, to sort of fill in the thoughts and, and maybe conclude this week. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, like I said, I don't have a ton to contribute here. There's, I have no takes and I think your, your, your response to me was like, well, I think that's a take in itself. Um, and I think that's fair is that, yeah, there it's just, you know, the United States is really the only country in the world, as far as I know, that just accepts these tragedies as a, a fact of life. I'm, you know, we're old enough at this point to remember you know, pretty distinctly um, when Columbine happened. And that was a shocking event to us. Like that is at least as, as far as I knew at the time, I never heard of anything like that. I remember how scared like um, my mom, my parents were that like something like that could happen in a school. And obviously in the last 20 years, you know, it, it seems to happen frequently. And, you know, I've been in a school building my whole life. Like it's like, it's as, as a kid and as a teacher, like it's, uh, you know, you obviously, you, you can't think of it every day because that would, that would be paralyzing, but it's, uh, you know, it's a place that you, like you rightly said that you just assume that you're going to go and be safe and that you are like, as a teacher, you're going to go home at the end of the day and be safe. And as a student, like you're going to go back to your families every day and be safe. Like, that's just, I think the natural and correct assumption that everyone has and should have about going to school. And it's, it's, you know, really devastating whenever that gets kind of like shattered again. Right. And it's like, it's one of those scabs that like keeps getting pulled off. And like, it's, it, it's uh, like this, the wound is like the fresh healing and never like really quite like freshly heals in the same way. You know, when you keep getting like hurt in the same place, it just gets like worse and worse. Um, I think it's an interesting point that you bring up with that. I, you're right. Like I haven't heard like these big outcries for like gun control and, um, reform and all of these things i and in some sense like that's a victory for the people out there that say like don't politicize this tragedy right the, the ones that say that like this isn't the time to talk about policy we should just be mourning like this the, the families and the victims of this uh this terrible tragedy uh but it's also as you correctly point out is somewhat of a resignation to the fact that like hey we're just going to live in a country where this is going to happen every once in a while we're just going to hope it doesn't happen in, in, in our our school, our city, our state, you know, um, and that's sad. Um, I guess the only other thing I'd say, and I do think there's some interesting legal developments that we'll probably talk about, like you said later, uh, is that there has been a story that's come out, this kid, 16 year old football player, Tate Meyer, um, who supposedly, uh, like rushed the shooter, um, and in in a bid to like disarm him and protect his classmates. And and he was one of the the three uh, victims who died, uh, from this shooter, but apparently did so heroically. And I'm, I'm really happy that I know his name and I do not know the name of the shooter. Um, we should, you know, while again, there's no, there's no real good to come of this, at, at least like 
the heroism of a 16 year old to lay down the life for his, for his friends. Um, it's, it's, it's probably a small consolation to the people that love him, but hopefully it is some consolation. Yeah. Um, very hard to think about that uh, for a 16 year old to do that. It can't just can't imagine. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, we've talked about like banning different types of firearms, but this is one of those cases where Michigan is going to seek to hold his parents accountable, right? Like in, in many instances, there are laws that actually prevent people who are at least high school age from getting guns today, but they clearly have been able to do so in spite of, in spite of those restrictions. And many of the times it's by taking firearms from their parents who legally own these guns. Um, if there's some kind of a, uh, an actual uh, judgment against these parents, which I, I don't know that I'm hopeful that there will be, um, but I think that is potentially a backdoor into some kind of, you know, legal repercussions for somebody other than the shooter, because, you know, as, as much as I think the Republican argument or sort of the longstanding pro-gun argument that guns don't kill people, people kill people. In many of these instances, the shooters themselves are dealing with some significant mental health issues and their access to the firearms ends up being the problem. So I, I like disagree that it's not the guns that are doing the killing, but I also would say that it may not be the person who's doing the shooting, who is most responsible. And I think, I think maybe we, you know, if we're looking for silver linings in an instance like this, which is very um, difficult to do and and maybe even too soon to do. Yeah. It's definitely a case that I I will, uh, that I will be following for sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested. I, I'm not totally sure how to feel about that. I, I want to give it some thought. Before, yeah, let's definitely circle back to that. Um, the last thing, uh, uh, Bob Dole passed away this past weekend and just wanted to acknowledge him. He's a little bit before our time in terms of, like, I, I remember him, like, running for president back in, in 96. Like, I still, like, have, like, pretty, like, not vivid memories, but, like, I remember him, like, I remember the presidential debates and, like, not knowing what was happening, but, like, watching them or, like, seeing his commercials and stuff. So, like, I knew who he was, but, um, and just reading some of the obituaries about him, I don't, I don't think I really realized, like, what like, a hero he was um, and grew up, uh, like, during the Great Depression, overcoming poverty, which was, you know, unfortunately, the typical of that time, uh, served in World War II, where he was, like grievously, grievously wounded um, in 1945 was hit with a, a shell and everyone kind of marked him for dead. They put, you know, he said he couldn't feel his, his arms. He was paralyzed from the neck down. Like his, his comrades wrote like a hit him with morphine and then wrote a big M on his forehead. And, and just to make sure that no one in his own blood to make sure that no one gave him a second dose of morphine, which would have killed him, but somewhat miraculously like overcame those injuries um, went on to serve in the house, the house representatives for eight years out of Kansas, and then 27 years in the Senate. Uh, he ran for president three times, I guess, most notably in, in 96, like I said, when he um, challenged President Clinton. Um, and it's, 
again, I'm getting this from just like memorials or um, that I'm that I'm reading about him. But it seems like he was one of the quote unquote compassionate conservatives, which I guess I don't we don't really use that term as much anymore. But like I would maybe try to fancy myself one of those. I guess uh, where uh, he had like very strong you know beliefs, like political beliefs, like a more like, kind of traditionally Republican beliefs, but was also someone that um, was willing to work across the aisle and um, do things for the good of people, like some of the things that he helped get through or, or sustain in a bipartisan fashion um, were like the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, a bill to rescue Social Security, some measures to overhaul like the welfare system. Um, and so, of course, it's like uh it's typical of us to be like, oh, it was a different time in Washington. And I'm sure like the 1990s weren't like this golden era of politics. But like with that said, like I do think there was time we acknowledge this when we talk about the the debt ceiling and like the deficit before, right? Like the last time that we had a balanced budget was in the Clinton administration, right? When the Republicans controlled the, the House and the Senate. And like Dole was a leader. He was the, the Republican minority leader three different times in, in the Senate. You know, so he was one of the like the kind of the main figures that um, was working like in that era of more bipartisanship and the willingness to to get things done for for the good of the country. I think um, one thing I read that I thought was interesting, kind of funny, was that his his press secretary for the '96 campaign had come out and said like he just wouldn't stay on message. Like they kept trying to be like. <laughs> Senator, you have to say like certain things. You can't get just get up there and talk. But he was someone that was pretty much like, no, like I'm like I'm not going to have this like scripted message. And I just want to like speak to the American people and say what I want to say. And um, while it obviously wasn't a successful way to run a campaign, I think looking back on it, the press secretary was kind of like I always really respected that he wasn't going to be like um, you know pigeonholed and put through like a a fine tooth like message of like this is how we win the election. He was just kind of be like this is what I believe. This is who I am. If you like me vote for me which um i in hindsight have a ton of respect for so you know a great american statesman um he lived a very full life i mean really if you think about it, like he hit the great depression and served in world war ii and served in the house and the senate and ran for president and um he, he was i know instrumental in organizing um trips for like older world war ii veterans which there are, are fewer and fewer of of course these days but like um he and his wife uh did a had a in their later years were were a big part of getting funding trips to Washington, DC for um, veterans of world war two to get together and to come and like see the memorial and do a a trip of DC. And uh, he was, uh, I think really a a lion in that like world war two veteran community. Uh, And it's obviously a huge loss. And with, we started this episode acknowledging that this is the 80th anniversary of um, or that uh, FDR declared war on the United States declared war, war on Japan. And, um, you know, President Biden and First Lady Joe Biden, I saw today were at the World War II Memorial, and I think they laid a wreath for um, Senator Dole. And um, yeah, I, he, he wasn't like a huge figure in my life personally, but uh, definitely like a, a huge figure in American politics in, in the latter half of the 20th century and wanted to acknowledge what seemed um, like a life very well lived. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Don't have much to add to that. Um... Yeah, almost, I guess, a little bit of a pity that I didn't know more about him. Um, In a quick Google search, he is not related to Dole Bananas. uh, Separate. Damn it, Ricky. But, yeah, it reminds me of that. I I don't know 
who the phrase is, but like the, the may you live in interesting times. Um, and certainly he certainly did that. Um, we'll leave it there. I think till next week, buddy. See you. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head and folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your regal bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.